Welcome to the season finale of Faith in Politics. This month, we have a great interview with Valerie Barra-Addy, MP for Streatham, where we discuss racism in the UK and what it's like to be a new MP in 2020. And after that, Rosella and I will be musing about what it means for the church and for us as a nation to truly reckon with our history of colonialism. We are very sad that it is our last episode on the Faith in Politics podcast. It's been a wonderful year. We've explored lots of different topics, chatted to loads of people and had a lot of fun along the way. So we thought we'd have a chat about quickly what our favourite moment of the year was, what our favourite interview was and what our favourite musing was. So Rosella, what are your top three? Yeah, it's definitely a difficult decision. My favourite moment would have to be chatting to Barry Gardner at the JP conference. He's a very lovely man. We were enjoying the busyness of the conference around us. And yeah, it was a great atmosphere there and a great chat. Um, in terms of interview, most feel quite, I feel like I shouldn't be going for this one. But my favourite interview was with Desmond Swain, which I wasn't even present for. Um, but I just really enjoyed, I think particularly because he was chatting about international development, which is my background. And he had some quite interesting takes on that, so I enjoyed having a listen to that, yeah. So finally, uh, in terms of musing, I mean, that's definitely been a highlight of JPIT this year, is having a chance to dig into these different things theologically and enjoy the reading around that. But I think I'm going to go for the one we did when we chatted to Paul Morrison back in April, and then mused on how Christians should engage with macroeconomics and why they should care about that. What about you? All good choices, all good choices. I think my favourite moment would have to be accidentally going into the Speaker's house um, in Parliament while I was looking for uh, Sir Desmond Swain and getting kicked out of there. Well, it maybe wasn't a highlight at the time. It was quite stressful. But in hindsight, it was good fun. My favourite interview is probably Jonathan Reynolds. I think he's going to become quite a prominent politician in the coming years. And I thought his reflections on the welfare state were fascinating. And my favourite musing... Um, I think it was maybe the general election special. I think we had a really good chat about truth um, in that episode. And I think that whole, whole episode offered quite a unique perspective on the election. So I'm quite proud of that episode as a whole. But just the year in general has been wonderful. Thank you for sharing it with me, Rosella. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for listening. I'm surprised every month when I see them. <laughs> yeah, thank you for tuning in every month. And we will leave you in the hands of next year's Uh, JPIT parliamentary interns and I'm sure they will take the podcast to new and exciting places in the coming year. But the podcast isn't quite over yet so Cameron tell us more about what's happening in this episode. Yeah so you're about to hear our interview this month which is with Belle Rivero Addy. She became the Labour MP for Streatham uh, at the end of 2019 after that general election. Before that she was the Chief of Staff for Diane Abbott while she was the Shadow Home Secretary, and before that, she was the National Black Students Officer, the National Union of Students. And for a few months, she was the Shadow Minister for Immigration, straight after she got elected, until Keir Starmer took over as Labour leader. So she's got some great perspectives to offer, and you can hear that interview now. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, you're new to the role of being an MP, but not new to Parliament or politics more generally, having worked with Diana Abbott previously. 
Um, can you tell us a bit more about your story of what led you into politics and perhaps how your faith has intersected with that? Well, I actually got involved in politics at university. And um, I remember going up uh, to university in Bradford. Uh, it was quite a long way from Brixton Hill, where I grew up. And one of the first campaigns I was involved in was actually supporting a fellow student of mine who was running the African Caribbean Society with me, who found himself um, being, well, under threat from deportation and eventually deported for uh, working over his hours. He was a Kenyan international student and he had switched from his undergraduate to his postgraduate degree. And apparently that changed the when he was allowed to work a certain amount of hours. He had over the summer holidays picked up a few shifts for a friend of his who had gone back to London for the holidays and didn't want to lose his job when he came back to uni. And uh, for doing that favour of a few extra hours a week, the Home Office decided to penalise him. We found out that EU students um, and watched EU students at this, this large meeting we, we got together had um, confessed themselves to having done this and only getting a slap on the wrist that he was uh, t taken in, deported, uh, well, taken into an immigration detention centre where he received some of the most horrible treatment. Uh, he was beaten up by some of these, these, these private company guards that tried to get people onto planes and he was eventually deported overall. So getting involved in that campaign was probably my first experience of a campaign and actually looking at how legislation directly affects what happens to individuals, in this case, international students. Also living up in Bradford at that time, uh, there was a massive British National Party issue. They had, a, they had British National Party councillors. And uh, I remember being shocked in my, my second year of uni um, when you know, we'd all moved out of halls and we'd moved into to, to homes to share with friends, uh, a leaflet coming through my door from the, the, the local BMP. And they were saying some of the most horribly racist things on this leaflet so openly. And also vowing that, you know, saying that the other major political parties had put up BAME people as candidates. And if they were elected, they would should, will make sure that none of these people were ever allowed to stand for election again, because they weren't they didn't reflect Britain and all of this, this really horrible stuff. And I, I was appalled that anybody could actually put that through somebody's door. Um, and I remember going to my students' union, you know, waving it in their face. And I, and I pretty much got, got, got told in, in, in the nicest way that if you, want to, if you want to change things, you need to get involved. And that's when I got involved in anti-racist campaigning there and, and linking up with, with the Labour Party there and other anti-racist groups who went out campaigning specifically to ensure that uh, we remove those BMP councillors. And over the years, that, that's what we were able to do. And um, I'm, I think about, uh, have the, this led me to national student politics and, and, and working in, in other campaigns. And eventually I came to work for, for, for Diane Abbott. And I suppose that, that, that after the rest <laughs> is history. In terms of how my faith in, intersects with that, I, I actually remember during my, my selection and my election to be Labour's candidate for Streatham, I, I quite openly put on my leaflet that I was a Christian and some people questioned this. Um, I, actually, I was quite shocked by how many people did question this. You know, I have received emails and um, was stopped by some people to, uh, on, on the street talking about it. Is why, why do you think it's relevant to put your faith on, on this leaflet? Faith should have no involvement in politics at all. And I was quite clear about the fact that I thought that I was, I was asked to tell people who I was. And my faith, my faith is a very integral part 
as, as, as to who I am. And it's not to say that anybody who doesn't have any faith doesn't necessarily want to do and achieve the same things that I do. But I know that a lot of, of what I think and what I believe and what I strive for is, is firmly rooted in my faith. And, and I wanted to let my constituents know who I was. And I think that's really important. I think it, it strengthens my resolve to help people. Um, it strengthens my belief in equality and um and, and it, that's extremely important to me if there was ever a good reason to get involved in politics then, then what you've shared certainly is it so so thank you for sharing that as someone who only recently became an mp what were those first weeks and months like i'm sure it must be a whirlwind at the best of times but you've been faced with brexit a pandemic and uh, these huge anti-racist protests just in your first few months and you've spoken before about the additional challenges that being a black woman poses in Parliament as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was certainly a whirlwind. It was, it was just before Christmas, which was which was a, a bizarre time um, to, to be doing things. But obviously that's what's happened with elections over the, the past few years in this country. And I think perhaps myself, I had a slight false sense of security. And others probably thought, because I'd worked in Parliament for such a long time, um, that I would be fine um, and that I would get on with it. And whereas some operational things I definitely did know how to do maybe quicker than some of my, my other new colleagues, um, I was now meant to be the Member of Parliament, not the person who worked for the Member of Parliament. So whilst I was very good at working for a Member of Parliament, um, being the actual MP was, was, was quite different. And, and there were so many things um, going on, as you mentioned, Brexit, um, and 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 then we went straight almost into the pandemic, and since then we've seen um, the huge rise in Black Lives Matter protests and everything that's happened since then. So it, it's been it's been a very challenging time. It's been been a time where I've been I've been able to campaign. I think one of the things that perhaps put me off uh, politics in the first instance, although I realised that eventually that that's what I, I was doing essentially through my work is the thought that I wouldn't be able to campaign as much on issues. I would just be one of those talking heads in Parliament saying things um, and, and, and not doing things. But I think one of the very, very different things about this time is that um, I have been able to do that. And that's, that's, that's been extremely important to me. Uh, it's definitely been a challenge being a, a black woman member of Parliament. Um, I've, I've been confused for a number of, <laughs> with a number of my colleagues, um, which is quite disrespectful um, when, I think of, when I think about it and, and thinking of some of the things that myself and my other colleagues have faced in terms of assumptions uh, that people have made. I remember repeatedly uh, people couldn't believe at the beginning when I started working with Diane that I could possibly be working for her. Most people would say, oh, are you her daughter or are you her niece? A very strange assumption to make walking around with somebody in the middle of the day, I don't know in what other professions people walk around with their kids, their, their fully grown kids in the middle of the day uh, and, and, and things such as that. And, and just noticing how people interact with you. There are a lot of micro aggressions, let's say, so things that you wouldn't necessarily usually count as outward racism, but the way in which people would, would speak to you or, or check up on your work or, or make assumptions. Let's say in this case, for a lot of us, it's about our age. Um, I'm, I'm told I'm older then I look, which is a great thing, um, but it's not, it's not fair for people to assume certain things about my experience and that's, and my ability. That's always been questioned and, and, and I've, I've never, never appreciated that at all. And, and, and a whole lot more needs to be done in this respect. We've seen with the Black Lives Matter protests over the past few months, 
they've been sustained um, and, and people just aren't willing to accept um, their lot anymore not that they ever have been um, but it, it is a particular time where people are quite fed up um, you know there are people have made more gains in terms of anti-racism across the country we see better representation I'm proud to be part of the most diverse parliament ever however if we were to continue at the rate that we're going in terms of increasing diversity in my particular profession it could take up to as much of a hundred years to reflect the the numbers of people in parliament that is equitable to the number of of people that look like me within society which is not right at all on that the black lives matter movement's been of course uh, vital in the last few months but what role can legislators specifically play to best respond to that clear need for change we've heard a lot about people need to educate themselves, the need for police reform, better employment practices. But on a national level, what, what do you want to see from the government? Well, um, education, which you touched on, is, is, is very, very key. I mean, at the end of the day, no one is born racist. No one's born racist at all. It's something that we learn, even, even these tiny microaggressions that we go about um, maybe perpetuating, that's something that we, we learn. So if we start with education, if we start with looking at um, our past and how that's come to reflect uh, where we are now. So for this country in particular, it would be slavery and colonialism, having a very open and honest discussion about that and teaching it to young people in schools, um, not as a, a source of shame or something that just to be brushed over, but to just be very clear that this is what happened and this is wrong and this is why we have to move forward. Um, I think m most recently we, we celebrated uh, VJ Day, I always get it wrong. There's different different memorials for looking at what's happened in the past world wars. And I was shocked to find that on, on the original um, V-Day, a lot of the, the Commonwealth forces were moved out and the white forces were moved back in to do that, that original parade, you know, completely whitewashing, essentially, uh, who it was that was involved in war. And I, I remember learning about it history and thinking to myself, it's called a world war, but we're learning about the world war and it doesn't seem like that entire world was involved from what we're learning i remember asking and being told oh yes there were lots of forces from across the world involved so why we didn't learn about that i don't i don't understand and um, so education is definitely key uh, since since the death of stephen lawrence and, and perhaps even slightly before then but definitely since then i've seen a, a, a number of different inquiries and reports looking at racial inequality in the justice system in the health system in education all of these different areas and around these times they've produced these reports and some very very key recommendations have been put down and they never and in any of these reports have all of them been met and that has definitely i think worsened the situation it makes it very very difficult when people are raising these issues you know raising very important ways to, to challenge them and what the government need to do uh, to change the thing and they're just being completely ignored and, and quite often it's because of the resources that are involved now i see this happens over all areas of equality, be it um, be looking at women or disabled people, and looking at those subjects, and 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 how and how policies impacting um, impacting individual groups, the government don't necessarily want to put into those because it always requires extra. And I understand that that you know being a government um, is it, a difficult thing. You've got to meet the needs of many many people, but it, I think it ultimately. Uh, it ultimately makes things in society worse if we're not looking 
after the most vulnerable. And actually, if you calculate the most vulnerable, they are actually end up being the majority of society. So why we don't take care of their needs, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't possibly understand. But I mean, as a first point, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of the inquiries and reports. We don't need any more evidence as to what racial inequality is. We don't even need any more suggestions as to how we can solve it. All of these things, most of them actually, um, um, commissioned by government, all of these reports and inquiries and their recommendations exist, it's just time we put them in place. You've spoken out also in the past about how the government's policies on immigration are embedded in racism and have ensured asylum seekers and immigrants are represented in Parliament. As the government redesigned the UK's immigration laws, what concerns you and what can be done by those who wish to challenge these? Well, definitely, I think it, it's been a, a race to the bottom in terms of immigration. Um, you know, people have tried to exploit issues that people have with immigration as an attempt to distract from, from key issues that we have in this country. So in terms of meeting the needs of, of, of people um, from low socioeconomic backgrounds, we see such high levels of scapegoating. Scapegoating and blaming it on, on others, um, you know, be it people from from dip, from from uh, who are seeking asylum, uh, refugees, you know, showing them to be the problem and, and kind of feeding off that for electoral gain. But it's, it's absolutely false. It's simply not true that um, the level of asylum seekers and refugees in this country are the reason why we can't build decent housing or there are underfunding in, there's underfunding in education or there's issues with employment that's simply not the case so there's a, definitely a lot of myth busting I feel that needs to be done and you can't seem to separate or we can't seem to separate the issue of race from immigration I think the most the most recent and, and, and stark and horrific example of this has been the Windrush scandal British people um, who simply because of the colour of their skin and their ethnic origin or their or their parents or their parents' actual origin, because some of these people would have come over and um, as their parents' status had not necessarily been resolved, they um, they had that issue as well. So some people weren't even born in the countries that they were deported to, or they haven't uh, they hadn't been there since they were very young and they were told and actually many of them when they came here and that was the main issue when they came here they were British nationals they were under the British crown um, as colonies of, of Britain and they were told that when they came here they were British their passports when you look at them said they were British and when they came here um, at, at a certain point again to try and appease um, those that are anti-immigration uh, the government change the legislation, change the legislation retrospectively, and it affected people and it ended up affecting those simply because they were black in the particular countries that they came from. Because there are other countries which were formerly colonies of the UK who were white countries. I think of Australia, um, New Zealand, um, the United States and Canada. The levels of issues that these individuals face when it comes to immigration has been nothing um, in terms of what people from the Caribbean, um, Africa and, and the Indian subcontinent face. And then you can see that that link very, very clearly there. So I think that's something that we definitely need to address. Obviously, the government apologised on numerous occasions about this, but we still haven't seen that reflected in, in the Windrush compensation scheme. And it's been very sad to see a number of people die before they receive that justice. Now, I think about what's being done with the immigration system now and how it's quite clearly um, 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 pushing pushing those individuals out. Um, I think about the fact that it's not even going to help us when we go to make trade deals. And actually, 
thinking of why this piece of immigration legislation that's come up now is, is being pushed forward specifically for EU nationals, that having already pulled out the rug um, from people who, who, who came to this country in good faith, they're about to do that to a group of EU nationals. So the hostile environment, as we know, it, is now about to be applied to, to a, a group of people with, who have made the UK their home, just like um, the Windrush generation. And I, I fear uh, for what's about to happen there. I mean, we saw some of it already during, the, 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 during, the, during this particular coronavirus pandemic, where some EU nationals have been struggling um, to, to get the support that's meant to be available to them. We have left the EU, obviously, but we're still in a transition period, so they should have access to this. And it's already affecting them, and I fear for, for what's about to come. I actually fear for what we need in this country. Um, there's a situation that I raised recently where we're planning to deport, the, the UK is planning to deport a, a social care worker. Now we have, before the pandemic, and up to a thousand 100,000, sorry, vacancies in social care. We had, before the pandemic, up to 40,000 vacancies in, in, in nursing. And a number of people um, from, these, from these different countries that have come in, you know, fill these vacancies. Why on earth would we want to deport them at a time like this when we, we need them the most? It, it's, it's, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face in the worst kind of way. It's, it's completely illogical. And if we're not even looking at it from 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 a humane perspective, which I hope that most people would, it's not even economically sound. It's also important for the church to recognise its own history and the systemic racism that can often be found there also. How does the church address this internally while also holding others to account? I think it, it's definitely very, very important um, for, for, for the church to do this and actually for all uh, religious institutions to do this. I think about some of the arguments or, well, not arguments, rather debates I've had with people who maybe have no faith, um, uh, as myself with someone with faith. And, and you know, one of, one of the arguments I do pose is some of the horrible things that have been done in the name of religion. And that is very sad, but to me that doesn't, doesn't reflect what the religion is meant to represent. But acknowledging those are, are so key in the same way I think that the government acknowledging these issues are so key. So I would love to see the church as, as it is putting itself forward and actually leading the way in a way that the government should go and apologising for its role in slavery and colonialism, acknowledging that you start first with an apology, that you apologise uh, to your equals, that you acknowledge your wrongs and you seek to make them right. I believe that once the church um, makes that move, it's um, uh, put itself on higher ground, if that makes sense, to be able to then uh, challenge the government in this way. Um, you know, as a Christian, I certainly believe that uh, our faith is meant to be rooted in inequality. Um, but, 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 but to do that, we have to acknowledge where we have been unequal. And the church is an institution like any other. So it should be looking at its employment practice, practices. It should be looking at how it meets the needs of different communities in the same way that any other institution should. Just one final question, which our listeners will know we ask all our guests. If you could ask one question at Prime Minister's Questions, what would it be? Hmm. I actually haven't had my first um, Prime Minister's questions, which is quite interesting. I've been putting in and have been unsuccessful so far. Um, but I think uh, I, I would like to ask, uh, just moving on from my last question, when the government is, is going to admit um, and, and, and acknowledge what has happened uh, over, over centuries in terms of slavery and colonialism and when it, when it will offer all of those countries 
which have been effective, uh, affected a true and heartfelt apology as a way of moving forward. Elbe Bewadi, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad that our last interview of the year on the podcast was such a good one. I thought Bell spoke really articulately and passionately about such important issues. Uh, and I expect and hope that she'll be a really prominent and important voice in Parliament in the coming years. One of the questions we asked her uh, was about what can churches do uh, to respond to the imperative for racial justice. And one of the things she mentioned was uh, churches apologising for their historic role in perpetuating slavery. So we thought we'd muse on uh, what it looks like to truly reckon with the past, both in terms of our nation and as churches, and particularly the idea of reparations, which is one of the ways that people have suggested this reconciliation could happen. And this is not as us uh, as white people suggesting that we have any authority on these issues, but filling you in on some of the debates, uh, both theological and political, that are out there and, and some of what people of colour are asking for. Yeah, so looking into this, you can see that this is a conversation that's been happening for a couple of decades, but it's one that's largely been had in the US, where perhaps their history with um, racism is much clearer and more widely recognised. Um, but it's really important that in the UK we're also having this conversation and it is starting to happen more. In July this year, for example, the Church of England released an apology for its historical links with slavery. It recognised that the missionary arm of the church um, was at one point financed by um, three sugar plantations in the Caribbean um, where slaves were used. Also, over 100 clergy at the time were also identified as benefiting individually from slavery. Um, when slavery was abolished in 1833 in the UK, um, the UK paid compensation, but not to those that were enslaved, but to slave owners for their loss of human property, the loan for which was only paid off in 2015. So it's really important to look at this in terms of um, a real issue that is still part of UK history and recent UK history. Um, and that while it might be a different story to the US, it's a real part of our history that needs to be considered. Um, so in July, when the Church of England offered its apology, um, the CARICOM Reparations Committee of the Caribbean um, invited the Church of England and called them to engage in conversations, not just about apologies, but about reparations. They said that apologies alone are not enough. They should be a precursor for reparations. Um, and that ensuring that the legacy of slavery that is still felt in the Caribbean today is um, is addressed by the church and by civil society as a whole. Yeah, I found it interesting seeing some of the reaction from certain corners of the press to the Church of England and other churches apologising for their uh, past links to slavery and for not doing enough in the present as well. And I saw one Telegraph article uh, heavily criticising the Archbishop of Canterbury and that article featured the line, the Archbishop's belief that we are collectively guilty is not Christian at all. And, and this is an argument that a lot of people make, that they kind of say, oh, I wasn't personally responsible for uh, the sins of past generations, so why should I have to pay for them? But I think the concept of original sin uh, is really helpful here, and one that obviously the writer of that article had not heard of. And kind of traditionally, original sin was uh, seen as inheriting the sinful nature of our forebears, or inheriting the inclination to sin. Um, but theologians in more recent years have kind of rediscovered the concept of original sin 
as inheriting the structures which perpetuate sin, the structures which benefit certain people to the detriment of others, which we may not have built ourselves, but we still benefit from. And that's what inherited sin um, is really about. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how um, this can be seen as a real modern conversation and something that the church is adopting to um, respond to conversations that are happening outside the church. But it's important to recognise that the idea of reparations really do have a biblical precedence. For example, we see in Ezra, where the Israelites have been in captivity by the Babylonians for two generations and have really had their home decimated. And we see King Cyrus, who wasn't the king um, when this all began, releasing the Israelites from captivity and returning to them the items that have been taken from the temple. So really important things to the Israelites. But it doesn't stop there either. Uh, 20 years later, the next King Darius, who wasn't even born at the time that the Israelites were captured and taken into captivity, he passes a law that decrees that the taxes paid by his citizens should be um, used to restore the Israelites to their home. And I think that's a couple of really important observations to make there. And we see some of the process of what um, reparations might look like, that it begins with the setting free of those in captivity um, and returning to them the things that were taken from them. But we also see at a later date that finances are given to help them rebuild and to um, help the Israelites to um, return to their their kingdom to what it previously was. And I think that seems quite a daunting prospect that it isn't sufficient just to set people free. It isn't sufficient to um, just give back the things that were stolen from them. But it's also about giving them what they need to rebuild and to recover and to really establish themselves as a community and as a nation again. Yeah, I also came across that uh, analogy and link to the book of Ezra. And I just thought that the, the parallels were so clear with the issue of reparations. It, um, it really struck me. The other biblical example that I saw used linking to reparations was the one of Zacchaeus in the Gospels. Um, with this idea that he profited out of being a tax collector for the Romans. But when he met Jesus, he didn't only apologise to his fellow Jews, he committed to paying back four times that which he had cheated people out of. He was profiting out of the unjust system of Roman taxation, even though he himself hadn't built it. And he acknowledged that economic restitution was part of the spiritual reconciliation that he needed with his fellow Jews. Yeah, so I think we can be fairly confident that there is a strong biblical case for reparations. But as with many things, it's important to also consider what this looks like and how this should be done. And perhaps what are some of the challenges that need to be overcome to ensure that a reparations process really achieves what it's intended to. Um, so we can look at some of the processes of reparations that have happened um, previously to see what we can gain from um, that experience. And we see, for example, it's thing, things have happened like um, young black people in the US being offered scholarships to universities. And it's a really important part of helping them to build a future that isn't readily available to them as a result of historic injustices and challenging that, that system. Similarly, the Caribbean Reparations Committee mentioned earlier, an important part of what they're asking for is support to help develop their nation and helping to recover some of the um, damage that's resulted from their colonial past. We see for one example, Haiti, which spent 122 years actually paying reparations themselves to France 
in order to buy their independence, which is crazy. And it really crippled their economy. And even today, they're still struggling from debt that has come out of that process. So to return this money that um, France demanded from Haiti for their independence would be a huge starting point for reparations. But to enable Haiti to flourish, I think more would be needed and more to kind of support them in that process of rebuilding. One of the ways that you could argue that the UK has been paying reparations in a sense uh, is through the international development budget, where um, a lot of the countries where our aid budget is going to are Britain's former colonies, who are obviously still facing the consequences of being oppressed. And now we've got the possibility of that being taken away following the merger um, of DFID with the Foreign Commonwealth Office. I mean, that was a a woefully insufficient um, way of paying reparations, um, but at least it was something which now has the possibility of being taken away. But yeah, as you said, the practicalities um, of how reparations would be paid is is often where the debate is focused. Is it about trying to correct the historical disadvantages that black people have suffered by kind of retrospectively paying for the unpaid labour that slaves did when uh, Western economies... Uh, were built on their shoulders and do you do that in in one fell swoop as it were through a a one-time check or uh, free provision of certain goods and services or is it about removing the barriers to social mobility and wealth accumulation for those who are still living the consequences of the past but I guess you can get into a semantic argument about uh, what particularly counts as reparations does reparations have to be an, an economic payment Um, and it's removing barriers just reconciliation more generally yeah I think that's really helpful point around um, whether we see reparations as an economic thing and I think in some aspects it's really important that we do so for example one recent case of reparations being paid um, was the Princeton Theological Seminary which offered I think it was a fairly small amount um, really in reparations a couple of years ago but in doing so, they didn't engage with the Association of Black Seminaries, who obviously would represent those who um, were receiving reparations. And this group rejected the reparations, partially due to this, the way that this was being done, um, and also it being quite a small amount. And in doing so, they were really treated as being ungrateful of this kind of kindness that was being offered to them. So it's really important, as in this case, that reparations are not just treated as charity because charity really skews a power relationship and exacerbates unequal power relationships. But I think also it's important that it does go beyond an economic transaction, because whilst much charity and development aid is really seen as conditional and kind of offering support on the basis of results and merit, it seems unacceptable for that to be the case for reparations. I think back to the case of the Babylonians and can't imagine that many of them were really happy with their taxes funding a temple of a foreign god. But by setting parameters on reparations, it again enhances power imbalances and forces others to accept certain values or measures of success, um, which have been a huge part of a colonial legacy that has enforced that. Um, So reparations really should empower communities and give them that economic freedom. Yeah, I think you're right about the danger of it being seen as charity. And I've seen people making the point that um, paying reparations could be a way of white people uh, washing their hands of any future responsibility, you know, saying that we've paid reparations now, so we're even. 
but in reality, it can't be a substitute uh, for ongoing work of reconciliation. And that goes for the church um, as for political institutions. And I think that part of the church's reparation uh, to black communities has to be theological. It can't just be economic. There's many people who still read the Bible through the same hermeneutical lens as the people who used it to justify slavery. You know, I've been in Bible studies where people read New Testament passages which mention slaves and conclude that, oh, it wasn't the institution of slavery which was wrong. It was just the way that slaves were treated. And that's the exact same argument that people were using in the 19th century to uh, justify the continuation of slavery for black Africans. So I don't think it's enough to just point out when people occasionally make that mistake. I think churches need to actively resist uh, interpretive methods which can lead to those kind of readings. Yeah, and I guess that really shows the importance of reparations not just being a, a quick decision and not being something that is um, almost a PR exercise in light of movements like we've seen this year with Black Lives Matter, that it really needs to be a process that is entered into humbly and really examines the historical legacy of the institution that um, that is doing this. And really important to share that story as well so that this is remembered and really part of perhaps corporate repentance. I think we all see it's really important that it should be a conversation and deliberation between historical oppressors and oppressed to ensure that it isn't a case of exacerbating unequal power relationships and uh, really ensuring that going forward there is this reconciliation and um, recognition of future relations being one of equals. I think this is a really important discussion and I hope it's one that that we have as a country and, and as churches whatever the outcome may be. And the final action we want to leave you with is a little bit of shameless self-promotion in terms of really want to encourage you to engage with the resource we've been working on over the last couple of months that we've really enjoyed doing and think will be really helpful for Christians wanting to engage in making policy change. And this is a resource called How Does Change Really Happen? It's going to be a series of videos and Bible studies to help you engage with these questions on how to really campaign effectively. Yeah, if you or anyone at your church is looking for a small group resource, I encourage you to check that out. Please don't let all our hard work be in vain. We really want people to, to pick this up and use it. Um, so the videos will be released on the JPIT social media and the small group resource will be available to download from the JPIT website. So do feel free to check that out. Thank you for listening to Faith in Politics a podcast brought to you by the Joint Public Issues team of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, the Church of Scotland and the Methodist and United Reformed Churches. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you so much for listening to Faith in Politics over this last year. To round off this final episode, our friend and fellow intern who's also leaving JPIT, Josie, will round us off in prayer. God of all, as the sins of the past continue to hinder people in the present, teach us true repentance. As the structures we inherit continue to discriminate, help us dismantle them. As the road to justice seems long and arduous, grant us perseverance. Guide those in authority to make decisions which ensure that black lives matter as much on earth as they do in heaven. Amen.